The Start On Demand. On demand. What's your excuse? That's what a young Winnipeg woman is asking. She just found out she has terminal cancer and only has days to live. And yet, she was determined to vote, and she did. She voted in the federal election, and she has sent out a powerful message to all Canadians to get out and vote. The Winnipeg Jets saw their sellout streak come to an end. Why is sports attendance down? A 60s scoop survivor shares his story on film and with us. And a python that went missing when the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship months ago and has spent the last few months on the lam has finally been found. What kind of exotic pet would you get? I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Wednesday, October 16th podcast for The Start. Greg, did you watch the Jets game? How did you respond, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, Look at I the put, joy you're put, getting out of his misery. Uh, just that, like, well, because it's so honest. It's the disgust is so honest. <sighs> as he's wearing a Chicago Cubs shirt. Yeah, all my like teams it, are just awesome right now. It's just fantastic for my state of mind. Jets have lost two home games in a row, 11-4 to four combined score. It's the first time since the Jets came back or the NHL came back to Winnipeg that the Coyotes have won in Winnipeg. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, they were 0-8-2 so previously. the Jets, Coyotes beat the Thrashers Jets. You got it bang on. Well done, McNabb. Thank anyway, you. can we move on now? Kelly Moore can talk about this all he wants at 25 after. <laughs> are you I'm, a fan? Not, I'm not talking about it Are today. you a fan of the Washington Nationals? No, no. No, is that because they, they left Expos. Montreal? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes, boy, just, just everything is coming up against oh, Greg this yes, morning. Absolutely. That's but a first for the Nationals, right? That is. It is a first uh, for the Nationals slash Expos franchise. The first time a Washington, D.C.-based team is going to the World Series, I think, since 1934. Uh, that team, I think, ended up moving to Minnesota eventually to become the Twins, but... Um, at least Team Canada beat Team USA in soccer last night. The first time in 34 years they'd beaten Team USA. And Rob Gale, the head coach of Valor FC, is going to join us this morning. And I was saying to Loren, you know, on this historic morning after this big win, who else would we have called in the first place but Rob Gale? Mm-hmm. He happened to be coming in today to talk about Valor FC's last home game of the season tonight, last match. So that's coming up at 8.45, and uh, Loren was in Portage La Prairie yesterday, and uh, you had quite the adventure yesterday, McNabb. You were all over the place. Yeah, I was saying, just telling Kelly Moore how great it is to um, work in a community of that size because you can get around. So I was first at a... Uh, house north of Portage, then a farm, then drove to the fire chief's hall, then drove back out north to look at some power lines, then drove back downtown to check the stride center out where evacuees are going. Then I drove over to the generator, the Polaris dealership where they're selling generators and did it all within, you know, eight to 10 minutes each time. But most importantly, not only was the community working so hard to get things back together, but man, I love how people rally in these moments. I know it's hard and I know it's can continue to be hard for days for everybody, but they open their doors. Sure. Come on in. What can I do for you? The people who were without power last night reached out to me last night and said, thanks for coming down and sharing your story. If you need anything else, 
let us know. Like if wow. I need anything else, it should have been me extending the, if you need yeah. anything else, what can I do for you? Right. So yeah, the gratefulness is overwhelming. Right. And uh, that's the power of these events. I think that's the good that comes out of it. You get to know your neighbors a little bit more. You have a greater appreciation for things we take for granted and it's just one of those things that we tick off in the history books and go, oh, yeah, do you remember that storm? Just like the flood in 97, for as devastating as it was for so many people, I think a lot of folks look back on that as a time that the community came together in an unprecedented fashion, a word that we've heard so much in the last few days. And, and it uh, really leaves its mark indelibly on who we are. Those times, uh, uh, trying times are are really um, indicative of who we are as a people. And I would urge everyone to remember that and try to hold on to that because the next few days, I think, is when it turns. The first few days, you think it's no big deal. Day four without power. Okay, what are we going to do? Five and six, you have that resolve and you work together. And then inevitably, frustrations start to come. And that's human nature and understandable. And it's easy for me to sit here and say, everybody, you know, pack your patience and, and do your best. But the time will come when people get angry or frustrated, and I hope it's directed in the right space. I think it's, Brett, you've used that whole idea of the stages of grief in comparison to these different situations, and I think there's a a genuine correspondence there in terms of how you view this thing. Ah, it was a little bit of an adventure for a few hours, and then you go into this whole idea of, of being able to overcome it, and then you get sorrowful, and then you get angry about it, and so it's a a little bit of a process. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. Hopefully uh, people can just come to, as Loren pointed out, a sort of a calm acceptance because those hydro workers, man, uh, do you think they've ever been this taxed? Never, never. And I was reading a lot of things on Facebook last night about um, some Hutterite colonies in the Portage area that are working to feed them. Uh, I know uh, a couple workers myself who were talking about how they were uh, at the lineup for lunch yesterday um, in a drive-thru and someone ran out of their car and ran up and said, stop, I want to buy your lunch. And so those are the kinds of things that you don't have to give somebody money or buy them lunch, but if you can at least say please and thank you, because this is not, you know, I I don't think we can use enough unprecedented. They're, they're now in a situation where they're going to be working for weeks on end. A note went out yesterday saying that they're moving di- people from different parts of the province to different camps, and they have to say yes to the work. This is now an essential service, right? So there is no saying, well, I can't make it, or my wife and kids you know, need help, they have to go. So which means some hydro workers who might have had uh, holiday plans, maybe they're going away, family vacation, that's all That's all out the window now for for employees who are deemed ma- uh, essential, right, Loren? Right. Yeah, they've been given a 21-day notice. Bruce Owen sending us the note yesterday that they have 21 days of on call, so to speak, that the, the, the ones that have been declared essential services now have to do that work if required. And if they have vacations planned, it might be a too bad scenario. So those are just things to keep in mind. If, if, if you're struggling out there with your power back on, you know, so are the people who are working to get the power back on. And the people working as well to get the streets cleaned up. I went uh, just for on the way into work. I decided to drive up Wellington Crescent, the, the fancy part along the river, right. the part where I will never, ever At be able to part. live. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows what you're talking <laughs> yeah. about. Yeah, And uh, <laughs> just the trees down everywhere, uh, branches everywhere. It's a huge mess out there. So the people who are working to clean that up as well, hats off to them. Hats off to anybody who is... Cleaning Manitoba up yeah. right now. And if you're looking at that mess and thinking like, well, let's get these trees cleaned up. If it's not hurting anybody and it's not a, not harming, right. you know, if it's not a danger, 
then maybe we also need to relax there too. That pile of trees might sit there for a long time. For a long time, right? It might get covered with snow by the time someone comes around. (laughs) No question about it. Shout out to the city of Regina and the city of Saskatoon who have sent crews here to help in the cleanup of those trees. And of course, our friends in uh, Minnesota, Ontario, and Saskatchewan who sent uh, hydro workers to aid in uh, getting the power back on for those who remain without it. Why did it? Why? You don't like the serpents? I do not. Greg? Uh, no, no. You touched a snake, though, in this studio, did that you not? That is true. I did. I forgot about that. Yeah, it was the, oh, shoot. What's the name? The, the rehab? Yeah. The, the wildlife rehab? Yes. Um, they came in and they brought a garter snake, I believe. Mm-hmm. I went to Narsa's snake dance with the kids last year. And you can grab the snakes if you feel like it. And so they're like, Mom, please help us out. And I looked at my husband, and he just goes, nope. <laughs> so I was like, well, somebody you- has to help these kids out. So then I just had to close my eyes and just read, because they were just everywhere. And I just reached around and grabbed two and then handed them to them with my eyes closed. And oh, was God. Like, please. Are you married to Indiana Jones? I didn't realize. <laughs> nope. Just a hard no on the snake hard touching. Hard no on the snake. <laughs> well, listen, a python that's been on the lamb since the Toronto Raptors won the NBA championship in June has been found in Toronto. Global's Morgan Campbell has the story. Have you ever turned your house upside down because you were missing something only to realize it was right there under your nose? This was his little hidey hole in here. Samantha Sinella has... Her ball python named Monty was on the lamb for nearly four months. She just found him curled up down here in the basement of this Toronto home. Monty even missed his first birthday. I'm sure he had some adventures wrapped around some pipes, maybe behind the fridge for warmth. Uh, maybe he looked out the window. I'm not sure. But. You may remember Monty from a couple months back. He went missing from his terrarium on the night the Raptors won the NBA championship in June. Either he escaped on his own or he had some help from a very happy Raptors fan. Less than a month later, a similar looking snake was rescued from a sewer grate. Monty's owner thought it was him. They even took him home, but it wasn't. Lovingly named Sneaky Pete, the imposter was returned to animal services. Monty's actually pretty shy and definitely docile. Uh, more so than the imposter snake, Sneaky Pete. So let's address the elephant in the room. How exactly did Monty survive nearly four months without food and water? Well, for a snake, it's a lot easier than one would think. And in fact, Monty could have survived nearly a year. Ball pythons are naturally curious reptiles who manage well on their own. They rely on fat storage in their body. And they'll often just slow down their entire system altogether. Although he's been on the crawl for months, Monty appears to be in good spirits. But Monty's long-awaited homecoming doesn't appear to impress the four-legged family members in the household. They uh, are suspect. (laughs) They perhaps knew where he was all along. This isn't the end of Monty's adventures. Next, he's headed to live with Sinella's son, who's away at university in Guelph. A new home, a new city, and endless opportunities for the slithery escape artist. Morgan Campbell, Global News. If only you could see Greg right now. He's got his 
arms crossed, essentially hugging himself. <laughs> Visceral reactions throughout that story. Well, I'm thinking back to about uh, 25 years ago when Robert Church from Petland, he went on to have like a TV show and stuff, moved to Calgary. Mm. Petland uh, had a location in Unicity Mall right next to the store my dad used to own in the mall. And I'll never forget the morning he came over and said one of the snakes was missing. <laughs> From the pet store. That was a very long couple of days. How? Until the, I'm just going to get out. How, why? I don't know. <laughs> Where was I don't it? know. They found it in the store, thank goodness. But we shared a wall, and it was just a very awkward couple of days for me until they, they found it. But here's the thing. They had this other snake, mm-hmm. and they didn't even realize that it wasn't their own snake. So, like, what? just exactly. No, no, in, the, in story. the story. Okay. Right? They had this other yeah. snake. And so you realize, that's like, how like how close is this relationship with this pet that you didn't even realize well, this python? You're not, are you curling up with a snake on your couch and gazing so into what its is eyes the and point? saying like, I, I, I'm with Here you. Here lies the question. I have no idea why we allow exotic pets to be going into other people's homes because at least, I don't know, I'm going to make this number. This is a made up number. 19 times a year, a snake goes missing. 19 times. Again, made up number. And then the rest of us have to be like, oh, great. Now, every time I go to the washroom, I have to be like, oh, not only is there no toilet paper, but there's a python in the bowl. <laughs> she was wearing this python like a fashion yeah. accessory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, well, you can see the story. Uh, if you go to our 680CJOB Instagram, we've linked the story there and she's got it wrapped around her arm. That's nice. Like a like a big fancy bracelet. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're also asking the question on Facebook, if you could have an exotic pet, what would it be? And if you weigh in on that, you have a chance to win tickets for Cirque du Soleil Amaluna closing weekend this weekend. Or if you actually have an exotic pet and you want to share a picture of oh, it, yeah. that would be great. And we're getting all kinds of uh, great suggestions here. Uh, Deb says a parrot would be great. Amber's, wow, this is uh, Atelopus poisonous frog. Again, things that can kill you. Why do we want them in your house? I don't know why you, uh, Amber wants a, a poisonous frog. Uh, Kim wants a unicorn. Okay, well. That's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, well, they're magical, right? Where do you get those? I would love a giraffe if it would a stay alive in this. Oh, I think they're so beautiful. I don't know where it would go, but. Where do you even fit in your house? It's super peaceful. I feel like I would open the window and be like, hey, giraffe have a nice day. I feel like your food bill would probably be excessive. It's a mm. large animal. They like the plants, the eucalyptus. No, that's the koalas. I've got one which tree is, which in my would yard. Be my choice. That's a good one. I would have a koala. I think they can get quite vicious. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, you ever seen a giraffe uh, fight back against uh, cats that are attacking? It's... That long neck, it'll go, it'll swing that thing around and get you. Uh, and then they, when they wave their their hooves at you, it looks it's terrifying. <laughs> I didn't think a giraffe could fight back, but wow, do they fight back. Roberto wants the three-eyed fish from The Simpsons. What was the name of that fish? Blinky? Blinky, yes, sir. Yeah. So you can keep weighing in at Facebook. You can text us at 204-780-6868. Somebody texting us, I would love to have a tiger for a pet. If they stay a cub, that would be great, but a full-size tiger, <laughs> that would be kind of scary, don't you think? What about people who have, like, tarantulas and stuff? Nope. Also not necessary. So where is, is there an exotic pet? You mentioned the giraffe. Actually, there's a line. I think if it doesn't live in this country, it doesn't come here. Really? That sounds just like a, just a terrible statement. <laughs> if that was taken out of context, if you just turned your radio on just now, I'm speaking specifically to animals 
wild <laughs> animals. <laughs> Giraffes, tigers, McNab lions. at cjob.com. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and we've been talking this morning about legacy. We've been talking about this video that has been seen by... Well over half a million people at this point, Greg. Who are we talking about? Talking about Madison Yetman. She's 18, and last week she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given only days to live. The University of Winnipeg anthropology, anthropology student posted a video on social media yesterday encouraging people to vote. In the video, she says one of her last acts was to cast her first ever ballot in a federal election. If I can find the time to vote... You can find the time to vote. Yetman is the niece of Global News Winnipeg Station manager Brent Williamson, who helped her make the video, and he joins us in the studio right now. Brent, uh, no words to express how we're feeling today, other than gratitude uh, for your niece and her powerful message. It's very special to have the strength to have this wish, to have this message for the rest of us uh, in the circumstance she finds herself in. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to be honest, for those of us that are closest to Madison, um, there's not much surprise here, to be honest. She is, uh, she's always been very strong-willed and, and uh, very clear on what she wants to say and how she wants to say it. And um, when this idea kind of uh, kind of sprouted, uh, and the comments around the room were like, oh my God, that's so Madison. <laughs> um, and so um, my wife said something really, Poignant yesterday, she said, uh, I always knew Addison was amazing, and now everybody does, else does too. She's the kid at the Thanksgiving table, I'm guessing, or supper or the meal that got the conversation going, maybe about some really important things, even at a young age. Yeah, I said this a few times yesterday, but she, uh, we all know where Madison stands politically. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Um, and she's very well educated on her on her issues. There's, you know, she she lets every, everybody know for sure. So when did she vote? Uh, so it was last Saturday. Um, uh, I wasn't there, but uh, I guess some people from Elections Canada came on, onto the cancer ward. Um, Madison was sleeping, and they didn't want the Elections Canada people were like, "Oh, don't don't wake her up. We'll bring her." But uh, her parents knew how important it was to her, and frankly, we weren't sure. You know, when you get a diagnosis of days to weeks, you don't pass on the opportunity counting on somebody coming back. Uh, so they woke her up, and uh, and she was happy they woke her up, and she got the vote. The video right now, I think we're at well over 430,000 just on her Twitter account. Then you combine all the other numbers of the ways people have watched it, we're easy, easily past half a million. But it's the comments that have really... Uh, I teared up last night reading some of them because they were from people who many of them actually said, I wasn't going to vote and this changed my mind. Or the college professor from the, the state saying at a time with you know Trump and apathy and all these things, this is the video I'm going to show all my students so that they can get the importance of this. Like I just it was overwhelming. I can only imagine for you and your family reading that that that's the whole point. Get the conversation going. Yeah, I think the comments were a little bit of an unexpected um, gift, to be honest. I, mean, I, I work in the media, so I knew this video was going to take off, right? I mean, it's, it's it, in some sort of sick way, it's what good stories are made out of, right? People love to see this stuff. And I knew that this video would do well if she chose to do it. Um, and But I didn't expect, um, I didn't expect all the great comments. And, and 
I don't know that she's getting to see them too much because her time is so precious that she's not sitting on her phone. She's with her friends and her parents and her sister. And, and um, uh, it's like a schedule at the hospital who gets to go in and see her and for how long, because everybody wants every minute with her. So she's, we're, we're sort of sending her some of the highlights through text. Um, so she sees the big ones that she really wanted to see. Uh, and she's getting some of the numbers, but she's, um, it's, you know, we will make sure that she knows the comments because I think what a wonderful send off for this young woman. You know, there's another message there in, in my mind as I'm hearing you speak about this idea of the, the number of likes and shares. And so many kids these days define themselves by those likes, those shares, those comments. And here is your niece who is sharing a message that is literally going viral. And she really couldn't care. Just that the message is out there. The, the statistics don't matter. The fact is she got her, her, her message out and it's being heard. Yeah, I, I mean, this, uh, I'm obviously pretty biased, but this woman's amazing. Um, we, I was telling you guys earlier off, off air, she, we, we designed the video. Like we had a little conversation about how to do it. And, and she was like, I don't want to waste a bunch of time on it. I don't want to sit in this room recording a video. I don't want to. And I said, okay, I can take care of the media for you. But we, the video, the reason the video is, is um, cards and not her script. She didn't have to memorize a bunch of lines. She wanted to be able to go in. So she, uh, I kind of gave her a, a, a baseline for a script for her because you know, I knew what she wanted to talk about. And she's on quite a few pain medications. So her mind's a little foggy. She said to me, there's not a lot going on out there except a bunch of colors. Hmm. Um, and so uh, I gave her a, like a baseline script and then gave her a, about uh, 15 hours where she sort of soaked it in. And, and I came back the next morning and she had, made some changes to it, put it into her own words. My wife right, wrote the cards out and, um, and then we were in the, and we maybe did five or six takes and uh, I, I don't think we were in there 10 minutes. Um, she's a bit of an amateur photographer and so am I. So we were laughing because we had to adjust the chair. So the lighting was right. So we had to get a nurse in there to adjust <laughs> another chair with the bed, um, which got a bit of a, a laugh out of both of us that we would care with lighting. Um, but it was all maybe 10 minutes. Uh, and then she was like, okay, thanks. I'm done. Like that's that I did, I've done that. I've set my message off. Now I need to get back to talking to people that I need to spend time with. And I was <laughs> pretty amazed by that. Brent Williamson is our guest. He is the station manager here at 680 CJOB and Global News Winnipeg. He is uncle to Madison Yetman, the University of Winnipeg, 18-year-old student who recently learned she has terminal cancer. Her video on what's your excuse for not voting has been seen by over half a million people. Brent, uh, how long has she been sick? <laughs> uh, it's maybe the most amazing part of this whole story. Um, October 6th, which was a week ago last Sunday, um, she wasn't feeling good on the Saturday. She had some strange bruises show up the Thursday before that. So just about two weeks ago now, she had some strange bruises show up on her, on her legs. Um, and they went to a doctor and the doctor thought it was uh, due to some of the medication that she was on for some really minor stuff that a lot of people deal with. Um, Saturday, she had the aches and pains. Sunday, we were all at family brunch at their house. And I heard her say to my daughter, um, they were going to play a video game. And she said, uh, you're going to have to plug the HDMI cable in because I can't lift my arm above my head. But she said it kind of like somebody who slept wrong. You know, it wasn't a big deal. I, I just heard it and I noticed it, but I didn't think much of it. That was around 1130. By 2.30, they had her at the um, Vic uh, Urgent Care. 
By 5.30, she couldn't walk. And uh, at 7.30, they told us that she had cancer and they thought it was leukemia. Um, turns out it wasn't leukemia. Five days later, they on Friday, they gave us the diagnosis that it was uh, what they call high-grade sarcoma that had moved through her entire body. And um, she had days and or weeks to live. That's last Friday. Last Friday. So she's just digested this news. She hasn't had a week. Six days, yeah. No, she hasn't had a week. And in the shock of all that, which would be, which would blow anybody over, there's this part of her that still said she wanted to do this. That's truly well, incredible. Yeah, we were in the Victoria Hospital. Um, and of course, we didn't know what was going on. Anyway, uh, we got the, the doctor came in and, uh, and I got to say, these doctors to, to stand in a room and, and uh, tell an 18-year-old and her family that she's got leukemia which now seems like a pretty good option, um, but it kind of blew me away. But So she gets about 7.30 at night, she gets this diagnosis that she's got uh, leukemia. And so there's tears, she's crying, we're crying, um, everybody's upset, and about two hours, now we're waiting for a transfer for her to come to HSC, and just sort of silence in the room, and she just said, I'm going to vote in that damn election. I don't care what happens. Two hours ago, you got told you have cancer. <laughs> you're 18 years old. Most 18-year-olds aren't even thinking about voting, and, and you're laying in a hospital bed, and you're like, I'm voting in that election. So we started the process right away of, like, how do we get her a ballot? Because, of course, at the time, we didn't know if she was going to be out of the hospital in a couple of days. And, you know, uh, uh, we started the process right away, and it turns out we didn't need the absentee ballot because they came to the hospital. The hashtag is what's your excuse? It comes from Madison Yetman, 18-year-old University of Winnipeg anthropology student who learned just last week that she has terminal cancer and has been given only days to live. But in her determination, she said, I am voting in this federal election. I want to vote in my first election. And they came to see her at the hospital and she was able to vote. Her uncle is Brent Williamson, who is our boss. He is the station manager here at 680 CJOB and Global Winnipeg. And uh, we learned, Brent, that she just started showing symptoms a couple of weeks ago, uh, but she was still just hyper-focused on getting to vote. What drives her political appetite? Uh, I'm not sure where it uh, where it comes from. Somebody asked me yesterday, like, was there a single moment that really um, got her going? And I, I can't... S- speak for that. I, I don't know. But um, right from the time she was in junior high, she's been involved in all sorts of um, uh, things at, at the, you know, the junior high level, the high school level, the university level. Um, if there's a, a a rally or a cause for something that she believes in, she's there and and uh, and she's telling us we should all show up too. And <laughs> um, yeah, she's just always been somebody that would really knew what she stood for and wasn't going to just sort of do it quietly in her room. She was active. Has it changed anything for you? I mean, in the past, just, you know, you know her so well, but now hearing her passion for voting, I can only imagine every election now going forward that that will be on your mind. I will admit that uh, I've, I have missed a vote uh, or two in the past just because I thought, oh, it's not going to make a difference. I'm busy. I got stuff going on. And um, I hope that that's the message that a lot of people get is that if uh, you know Madison can measure her time left here in hours and she took 10 or 15 minutes out to vote um, and it, most people have a lot more time than her. And, and that's really the message, right? So, yeah, I know I'll vote in every election going forward uh, 
uh, I think Julie Buckingham wanted to get the voted for Madison uh, hashtag going, which we think is great. And uh, um, I'll be voting for Madison for sure. Yeah, the hashtag would be if you want to post your picture of yourself voting and hashtag I voted for Madison. We don't care who you voted for at the ballot box, but if that's one of the reasons that got you out there, that's perfect. Yeah, we've heard from Justin Trudeau who uh, posted, thank you for inspiring Canadians and reminding us how precious a vote is. And uh, Jagmeet Singh says, I'm speechless. This is truly powerful, Madison. Thank you for your courage in the face of adversity. And Brent, that's just what keeps going on in my head, this idea of reconciliation reconciling what your future, what your fate is. And then this has almost turned into a celebration of of what Madison's life is and just sharing that with the world. It's such a special gift on all sides here. Yeah, it it goes back to what my wife said yesterday about, you know, we always knew Madison was was amazing and now everybody else does too. And it's the... um, uh, for everybody else to see it, but for also for everybody else to... to, uh, to say it, I think, is is really nice for the family and for Madison. I don't know that Madison's spending a lot of time uh, reading the comments, to be absolutely honest, because, again, her time is very precious. But um, she knows some of the bigger uh, names that have, uh, have have retweeted and commented on it. We've made sure we've screen grabbed them and sent their emails with them. And um, I think she's pretty happy to see those. But um, she's, she's just so focused on spending um, her time uh, with her friends and with her what mom are they and doing? dad. What are they doing? Stuff. Uh, they're doing what Madison loved to do. Um, they, She was a, a big gamer, so she's got some friends online that she's the game with on a regular basis. It flew up from the States, um, and they hooked up their computers to the uh, TV in the computer or in the room and played video games. I don't even know what video games. She was a big Dungeons & Dragons player, and so they're having a, a Dungeons & Dragons game, and it it's funny because apparently Dungeons and Dragons doesn't really end um, and it's going on and on and on. And these kids keep coming back and playing more Dungeons and Dragons. And um, <clears throat> it's, you know, so she's, she's doing what she wants to do. And, and um, it's really great to see, but it's also really difficult because um, everybody wants some time with Madison and everybody wants some alone time with Madison. And um it's it's hard on the family to to um, to let her have that time, but they also understand that she's eighteen years old. She's a she kid. Wants to be with her friends as adult and as some, as much leadership as she has shown in this tweet and in this message, she is still an eighteen year old girl and and doing what she wants to do. Yeah, yeah, and, and I she's I can't say she's enjoying it, but she's making the most out of it. That's for sure. Her name is Madison Yetman. You can see her video where she asks you, what's your excuse at cjob.com. We've got it on our Instagram. We've got links to it in our Instagram story. It's all over social media. Brent Williamson is her uncle. He's also the station manager here at 680 CJOB and Global News Winnipeg. Joining us live on The Start. Brent, thank you for sharing this story. Thanks for uh, giving me the time, guys. Right now, we want to focus on, we mentioned Power 97, a lot of people still without power. 10,000 
41 is the total right now. It's down about 100 from a few hours ago, so it's slowly coming down, but we know it's going to be extended in many areas. And we want to go back out to Portage this morning, where right now in the RM of Portage, so that's the folks outside the city, 2,068 customers without power. Cam Blight is the Reeve of the RM of Portage, is on the phone now. Good morning, Cam. Good morning. I know you spent much of the day yesterday touring damaged areas and talking to people who might be in need. At this point, with those 2,000 customers without power, are all of them still staying in their homes or have they moved on to hotels or other locations? Tell us just about the, the folks that are dealing with this. Uh, it's a mixed bag. There's there's some people that are staying at their homes because they want to keep the generators sopped up or just you know watch their properties. Um, a lot of them, it's their livelihoods as well because they have livestock or grain to worry about. So they're staying on site, but uh, there's also quite a few that have moved in with family and friends and also those that have tried to find hotels uh, across southern Manitoba. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, um, but uh, there, there's still quite a few people that are hunkering down and uh, trying to ride it out. Cam, we've used the word unprecedented uh, in numerous times uh, on this radio station, as I'm sure you have in talking about this and in coordinating the things you've coordinated. Can can we get some positive vibes out of this? Uh, I'm always blown away at how people come together in times like this. I can only imagine that that you're seeing so much of that in your capacity as a Reeve of the RM of Portage. You know, I, this isn't my first rodeo. I've gone through the 2011 flood, the 2014 flood, and some other potential disasters. And uh, this, this province of Manitoba and, you know, the community of Portage Prairie in particular never ceases to amaze me. Uh, how people rally together and, and rise up to help each other is absolutely incredible. And uh, I, I just can't thank everyone enough. And, you know, not just that, it's the neighboring provinces coming out to help and, and the hydro workers and the men and women that are working diligently uh, through the nights to putting in endless hours trying to get this power restored. It's nothing short of incredible. And uh, I've said it many times before, it makes me very proud to be Manitoban. I was out in that area yesterday and just took, you know, a drive five or six miles north towards Delta Beach and then took some of the side roads, Cam. And I, I think everywhere I turned, there was just line after line and pole after pole down or damaged. And in some ways, it, it has to be hard to look at all that and imagine that this seven-to-day timeline is a very real scenario. You know, absolutely. Uh, it it hit me pretty hard when I saw it firsthand. And I was even just seeing it myself. I was overwhelmed trying to think, how can they do this? Um, but I was provided great reassurance yesterday. Late yesterday, we had some excellent meetings with the pro- provincial government and Manitoba Hydro uh, individuals. And I went into their EOC and I got to see their plans. And I spoke to you know the person that's in charge. And boy, I, I left there feeling very confident. Uh, they know what they're doing. They got plans in place and they got the boots in the ground and they said this is going to come together quickly. And I'll be honest with you, I I believe them. Um, I left there pretty excited and I'm very encouraged and, uh, you know, I I can't wait to see what they they can do. But we're just going to try and assist them as best we can to, you know, maybe keep roads closed just solely so that the hydro workers can get in and out without being interrupted. Um, But it's... uh, they got a huge task ahead of them, but they're determined, and, and I, I have no reason to doubt them. I have such a huge smile on my face right now listening to your positivity, Cam. It, it, uh, you're making my day, i got to tell you. And so what's next uh, in terms of, of, the, of the planning? Because there's going to be a burnout or, or something. We're going to be hitting a wall here in terms of uh, uh, manpower and the ability to, to just keep 
churning out hour after hour of work and to, to do all the things that are necessary. Are you planning for that? Just a, the ability to, to give some people a little bit of a break in, in terms of what they're dealing with, coordinating, whatever it might be? Yeah, you know, obviously we're not involved in the hydro and the things. Uh, they're setting up the shifts and their schedules, et cetera. Uh, but we are. We're currently, now that we have a better understanding of a potential timeframes for restoration for people in our municipality, you know, it's broken down into like a zero to two day time frame or a two to four or four to six type of thing. And so that gives us a better understanding of what areas we need to focus on and how we can, you know, develop a communication strategy. So currently our staff, uh, we just finished a meeting. They're working on setting up some programs. Hopefully we, you know, we can help provide some meals if necessary. We can, uh, you know, uh, work with Salvation Army, hopefully to have some uh, food banks set up. Um, we're trying to access some more generators and just provide any relief we can for people and just call out to the public again to, you know, if you could supply a meal, that would be amazing. Or, you know, just a warm place for people to sit down and visit. Uh, but we're, we're working on all that and uh, hopefully we can communicate to people uh, what we feel the potential power restoration timeframes may be. Now, we have to keep in mind that, you know, this isn't a hard, firm time frame because things can happen. Um, extenuating circumstances come into play. So, we're, but I think people just want a bit of an idea and they just want to know what they're up against and, and we're just going to do everything we can to uh, help them through this. Cam Blight, Reeve of the RM of Portage, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Cam, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Global News has been doing a series in recent weeks called Ignored and Ignited, and it's being led by Global's Mike Armstrong, who joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Armstrong, good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you. So who's the latest edition of Ignored and Ignited focusing on? Well, it was kind of an experiment. We put out this call and asked people what they thought was sort of being ignored in the selection, and we had several people write in and say, defense, um, the Northern Passage, it just feels like there are issues out there um, that you know can- Canadians should be worried about in this election that aren't being discussed. And so I called a bunch of experts uh, who deal with this sort of thing in national defense, uh, foreign policy, and uh, the reaction I got from them was, Absolutely, that there is a ton of frustration out there uh, from people in that community um, that this isn't being discussed. They they basically said there are um, more threats than there were four years ago. Um, China, Russia, um, the world is a more dangerous place, and yet no one's talking about it. What's that play there, Mike? Because there's always, we do these uh, polls every single election, and they have the top five, you know, it's always healthcare, it's economy, it's taxes, it's all those kinds of things. And uh, sometimes I wonder if it's the questions we're asking as opposed to the answers we're being given. Like, what, what's driving the idea that we push those issues to the back burner? Yeah, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, the the party leaders are trying to attract to, uh, excuse me, trying to speak to the widest audience they can and attract as many voters as they can. So they concentrate on the issues that they think are going to get them there. Um, But that doesn't mean that, um, for example, defense. I mean, we're talking about a federal jurisdiction. It's not the provinces. Uh, And so when we're choosing a federal government, it's probably something we should be discussing. It's also one of the biggest issues in every federal budget is is defense spending. And basically, Canadians at some point in the coming years are going to have to spend a lot more for for their defense. Um, We can put off the debate, but it's going to happen at some point. Um, The threats from China, as I said, the threats from Russia, just look at the North. 
uh, the Arctic. I mean, Russia's putting new bases up there, 10,000 soldiers. China's trying to get onto the Arctic Council because it says it, it views the Arctic as a global resource. Well, that should make us a little nervous. I mean, um, Matthew Fisher says that, uh, who's senior, uh, longtime uh, international correspondent, said, "Look, uh, you know, they say they have no military um, intentions in the north, but they said the same thing in the South China Sea, and then they built all those islands and put bases on them, and now claim much of the South China Sea as Chinese territory." So we should be careful about the North, and yet we're not doing anything about it. And compare this election to four years ago. I mean, we had this, back then, we had an aging fleet of fighter jets, and we were looking for a replacement, and everyone debated the F-35. Well, four years later, we don't have a replacement, and we're not talking about it at all. Those jets are just older than they were. So, you know, you mentioned this whole debate, and you can debate whether climate change is uh, influenced by man or not, but what we cannot debate is the fact that the polar ice cap, the Arctic uh, sea ice is melting, which is going to make this issue of northern sovereignty, so to speak, even more important. Th- these two issues are directly tied to one another, Mike. Just as defense and uh, economics are tied to each other. I mean, uh, who's going to be going through there, but also who's going through the South China Sea? And, you know, we our ships were buzzed uh, in Asia by uh, Chinese warplanes this past summer. Um, what's going to happen in the future? Are our ships going to be able to get through? Uh, part of normal trade routes and things like that are now being affected. Um, so we do have to worry about that, and, and we're not uh, probably spending the money we should be. So it's almost like we're sticking our head in the sand on this one. Certainly feels like that. And another reason we shouldn't do that is what's going on south of the border. Uh, I mean, we've obviously seen the U.S. uh, and President Trump say we're not going to be responsible for the whole world as sort of this global policeman. Well, that's kind of been the role that the U.S. has played since the Second World War. Uh, and, and no country, perhaps, arguably, has benefited more from that defensive umbrella than this one. Uh, I mean, we, we sort of take for granted that the U.S. will protect us no matter what happens. Um, but if you speak to the experts, the move away from that role as a global policeman started before President Trump. Uh, he tapped into it. But even under Obama, they were, they were moving away from, from that role. So it is absolutely something we should be consider, considering going forward. So, Mike, as we, we look south, as we look to Europe and our relationship and our involvement in NATO, uh, are we going to get called out here at some point from somebody other than the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know what? It's funny because we, we also have to worry about this hemisphere. You look at Russia. The U.S. has told Russia repeatedly, don't go into Venezuela. And they keep sending soldiers into uh, and uh, troops and they, uh, they call them... Uh, um, sort of helpers or something like that uh, into Venezuela. They, they, they did it as recently as last week. Uh, and then you look at uh, Cuba. The, US, the, the prime minister of Russia was in Cuba just this month um, shaking hands and renewing uh, economic and military ties with that country. So it's going on right in our hemisphere. We should be thinking about it. Mike, while we've got you here, I'm just looking at globalnews.ca, and I see yesterday you posted another ignored and ignited story. This one has to do with seniors feeling neglected by political leaders. Why is that? Well, you know what? As soon as we put this call out in this little experiment, uh, the, the emails from seniors started pouring in. I have a uh, sort of a folder full of emails from them. I would also add I got one fax. Um, people saying that they're just, they're, 
<laughs> they're not being listened to. Uh, yeah, the fax was a little weird for some of the younger people in the newsroom. Um, but um, yeah, they, one after another, it's just people saying, look, uh, I'm on a fixed income and no one's worrying about me and, and the cost of living, um, what I'm getting is not keeping up. Affordable housing is a huge issue for seniors, not, not one that I necessarily knew was as serious as it is. Um, it was people in Kingston, Ontario, who were saying, you know, all these people are retiring out of Toronto and selling their expensive houses and moving here. Well, that takes away houses in Kingston. Um, it was just one thing after another. Um, people saying, look, we're vulnerable and, and the, the politicians should be worrying about us. Mike, is this just an example of how some of these sidebar stories have, have taken over this campaign and, and that the issues have, have almost got ignored on, on some level? Oh, it, you know what they haven't ignored, the, the leaders, probably? Each other, right? It, it's felt like there's been plenty of attacks, uh, but maybe the platforms haven't come out as uh, clearly as they should have. All right, Mike Armstrong, Global News, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mike, thank you as always, sir. Thanks a lot. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. I've often wondered why soccer is so often played in cold weather in Europe. Well, <laughs> tonight uh, we got one more match at home in Winnipeg in weather that I'm guessing even the football team was not prepared. Probably looking forward to their road game and their final game <laughs> of the season. Tonight is Valor FC's final home game of their inaugural season as they take on York 9 FC and then wrap up the season on Saturday on Vancouver Island. Valor FC head coach and GM Rob Gale joins us now. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, guys. How are you? Doing really well. And I just want to say, I think no matter what, I would have been reaching out to you last night or this morning based on what happened in Toronto last night, an historic night for Canadian soccer as they beat Team USA for the first time in 34 years, 17 matches. What happened? Uh, number one, we should have beaten them a few times before, and uh, Stephen Hart came close in uh, a gold cup a few years back. But uh, no, it was a great night for Canadian soccer, and it's uh, it's just building on the momentum of the Canadian Premier League, our, our national youth teams that I used to be involved in, and these young players are fearless now, and we we've proven that we can go out and compete with the best in our region. Now, you were involved in the under-20 team for so long, Rob. So is this the manifestation of the work that Soccer Canada has done to bring the game to the next level in our country after not qualifying for World Cup since the 80s? Yeah, for sure it is. And uh, like I said, the, the league uh, is a big part of that, the development of the youth youth teams and Tony Fonseca, Sean Fleming, um, lots of people involved over the years and, Obviously, with John Herdman taking over, who's a, a great man, manager and motivator, uh, he, he's looking to build on and we're looking to qualify not just uh, for 2026 when we host the World Cup, but for 2022 in Qatar as well. So, exciting times. The frustration that, you know, you mentioned the fact that uh, Canada should have beat USA a long time ago. They've felt some frustration over the years, and I can imagine it's been somewhat frustrating for your team, too. A lot of excitement. The fans are still really in it, but it hasn't exactly gone the way you had hoped. What's your message to just both your team and, and fans as we head into this final game of the season? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been on a big upturn since the end of the spring season where we had a lot of injuries and uh, a lot of, you know, 
unfortunate results, I'd say, at home. Uh, but we've turned the corner there. We're up to third in the table. If we beat York tonight, we'll be back there. And that can get us to uh, a better draw for the Canadian Championships and CONCACAF qualifying next year. So it's an important game. The fans have been fantastic, as you say, all season. And, and why we're not going to win the first ever Canadian Premier League title. Uh, we've showed good improvement throughout the season. We've got a lot of young players and most importantly, it's how we've affected the community and brought professional soccer back to Winnipeg for a, you know, what's been a far too long absence, probably since the last time Canada was beating US. It's been a similar amount of time, 26 years. So we've made a lot of great strides this first season. It's been a roller coaster, but we're hoping to finish well tonight and, I'd encourage anybody to come up, bounce up and down in the trench to stay warm, sing some songs and enjoy a unique sporting atmosphere. You mentioned a win tonight is third on the table. We've talked about this before, but does table mean standings? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, the, league, the league table on the standings. Sorry, D- this one? No, no, I like European, it. I want to make sure. Me, this cold weather bringing it out. <laughs> <laughs> so Brett referenced that whole idea of uh, the games that are saw uh, seem to be played in all sorts of weather in Europe. And then you mentioned the CONCACAF Championship. So because the Valor FC is part of the, the CPL, just explain some of the other external competitions that go on outside of league play that, that Valor FC hopes to participate in and how that works, Rob. You know, I think that's the beauty of soccer and why it's called the world game is we're not just involved in the domestic championships and we get to play in, in regional events and, and compete. So we have the uh, the Canadian championships. Uh, and as you saw this year, the uh, cavalry team out of Calgary went and beat Vancouver Whitecaps and we get to play against MLS teams. And then also Forge FC got to compete against teams down in Honduras and Mexico and uh, Guatemala and other places. So the beauty is if you succeed in your domestic league or cup competitions, you get to challenge yourself against the bigger pool. And, and for us, that's CONCACAF and the Central American region. So as you head into the final match tonight at home, how would you sort of grade the season, at least in terms of the, the fan support? Oh, fan support. You can't grade it. They're they're beyond the grade. A plus plus plus. They uh they've been so good. They they've really turned ideas and 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 thoughts and and what it could be into reality. And you got to remember, this was a group of individuals, probably no bigger than about nine or ten excited fans, that had a vision for a soccer club long before it was named or or released. And as soon as they heard that the Blue Bombers were looking into bringing professional soccer back to Manitoba. They uh, they started this supporters group, Red River Rising, and it's it's grown in numbers, grown in strength. And if you've been to a game, the atmosphere, I mean, I was at the Jets game last night, and apart from the performance off the field, it was a snooze fest. <laughs> you know, it was, it's just not as exciting. You've got one chant, and that's about it. You can't get the crowd going. And what's beauty about soccer and the fans at, uh, at IG Field is, no matter what's going on the field, they're bouncing, they're singing, they're chanting. It's uh, it's a show within the show. So I can't commend the fans enough for their support this season. And the team's rallied and improved, as I said, which is what I'm looking for as a coach. And 
we're going to continue to build off of that and the fan support, and, and it's just going to get bigger and better for us here in Manitoba. Not to mention the local lads in the lineup. Rob, we'll leave it there for now. Good luck tonight as you wind down the season, but we look forward to speaking with you uh, throughout the winter and heading into the spring season for CPL and, and everything else that Valor FC is up to. You've done our community proud, Rob. Thank you for this. Love it. Thanks for your support, guys, and uh, come on out tonight. Valor FC head coach and GM Rob Gale joining us live on 680 CJOB. Tonight is Valor FC's final home game of the inaugural season as they take on York 9 FC before heading to BC to wrap up their season on Saturday. Jets played last night. Obviously, the result was unfavorable. That's uh, two straight losses now for the Jets. Two straight losses at home. And uh, something that a lot of people may not have realized, because unlike a lot of sporting events where they announce attendance in-house, the Winnipeg Jets have never done that. That's because their games have been sold out until last night. Their 332 consecutive game sellout streak came to an end last night with the first crowd ever under 15,000 at Bell MTS Place, the exact number, 14,764. And Winnipeg wasn't alone in this last night. Ken Campbell, you might know his name from the Hockey News, he tweeted out this last night about 11.39 p.m. I don't know why you would have seen this, Loren. You should have been fast asleep. But I did. Four (laughs) of the five Canadian teams that played at home tonight failed to sell out. Winnipeg, Calgary, Vancouver, and Montreal, all below capacity. Toronto did sell out. Huge attendance problems in Ottawa. They had just over 9,000 people. Ottawa did for their home opener last week. What's capacity there? 17,000. Not good for the NHL when Canadian teams struggle at the gate. The Blue Bombers had under 21,000 people on Saturday. A lot of people looking at the weather and saying that that attendance is an anomaly. But, I mean, let's face it. The Blue Bombers have been getting almost exactly 25,000 people per game I think they had just one sellout, which was the Banjo Bowl, correct? Correct. And And that's typically the way it's been the last several years. So it's got us wondering, are you are you tapped out on the on the sports entertainment dollar? Because this is something that, that I think some of us saw coming with the Jets in the last couple of years. If you have season tickets, it's become increasingly more difficult to get rid of your tickets. Not because you want to dump them, but I mean, let's face it. If you have a full season or I have a half season, I do not have time to go to 20 games. I, I'm committed to being a part of of Jets Nation and making sure that the Jets have the revenues that they need to, to be in Winnipeg. Uh, purchasing season tickets part of my civic duty in my mind. Mind, but um, it's does that be- make me a bad citizen? Not in any way. It's just it, it's more the reason why I do it because it uh, broke you my heart when they left. Yeah. Correct. And I always said that when I was of age, that if the NHL came back, I, w- I would make sure that I would do do my part. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to sell tickets to games that that maybe you can't make use of. What I- is a sorry, Loren? What is a if you dump your tickets? What do you sell them for? I sell them for exactly what I pay for them. Which is? Which is, uh, I think this year it's $98 per ticket. $98 per ticket and you're in the upper deck. Yeah. Yeah. And there'll be a range there, right? Like it's... uh depending on the, the game, the person they're playing, or the team they're playing, the tickets have a different kind of value. The, the face value, to them right? The the face. Face You're talking value. about what you pay for them, and so Correct. you sell them for that amount. Typically, so that's $200 yeah. to go to an upper-level 
deck uh, to sit in the upper level, then you've, you know, 10 bucks for parking. And maybe if you just did one drink and a slice of pizza or say you did nothing, say you just went to the game and parked, you're spending $210. It's a big ticket. And and I mean, let's face it, it's 15,000 people attending a, a, a hockey game or you know, best case scenario, 30,000 or 33,000 people attending a football game. It's still a small percentage of the, the population of Winnipeg, but we know that hockey and football have become television driven leagues. And that's why a lot of teams were looking at the Winnipeg model and going 15,000 seat arena. Hmm, maybe that's the way to go. No, nobody's really followed suit on that and shrunk their arenas, but let's face it. Uh, the Winnipeg jets, uh, they, they they have not had one game that has gone as a non-sellout up until last night. So now we're asking the question, are you, are you better, are you more comfortable watching the games at home? Uh, I don't think it's a question of the product on the ice at all. I think obviously we had a good run two seasons ago. Last year wasn't wasn't so bad, you know, two, two years of playoffs. I don't think it's about, and the same goes for the Bombers. I don't think it's like, okay, well, we haven't had a championship in X number of years, and that's why I'm not going. I, I think there is a general fatigue, and maybe I'm just speaking personally and the people in my life. Post the 2018 playoff run, I really do think that two months, as fabulous as it was, was also hard on your pocketbook. It might have been hard on your liver. It might have been hard on your bottom line. It might have been hard on your sleep and your and your patterns, and it was really, really um, fun and exhilarating but tiring. And so I think there are some people that got to September that thought, well, I I spent way more Mm -hmm. in those final months of the season in the playoffs than I ever would have maybe in a whole year. Or you also are just like, I had a hard time getting my excitement back up last fall just because of sort of that climb the mountain and you you almost made it to the top and then you didn't and the, the, the disappointment and everything that came with that as well impacted everything. Okay. I think it's a it's an interesting point you make on on both those fronts, Loren. Yeah, and, and I, I've we all know that I'm not a huge sports guy. I like to joke about the sports things. It's not that I don't enjoy going for the experience. I've been to two bomber games this year. That's the most I've been to probably ever. Usually, I might go to one if at all. Uh, both times, though, I had access to the suite. Once was because it was I went with some people from work, so it was sort of like a work commitment. And then another time, just a buddy had access to the suite, so I joined him there because, uh, you know. It's, it's a neat experience, and they had already arranged transportation. But for me, I think going to bomber games is cumbersome. And I'm not like for diehard fans, it doesn't matter, right? If you're a big fan, you want to go to the game, you're going to go to the game, you're not going to complain no matter what. But for me, it's hard. I think it's, it's cumbersome getting to and from a bomber game. And the Jets, price tag A, Bell MTS place B. I am just not comfortable in those seats. They're too small uh, for me. I'm 6'4", uh, a little under 200 pounds. So maybe, I, well, maybe since I dropped a little bit of weight, it'd be easier to squeeze into those seats. Yeah, if you sat next to me, I'd be taking up a little bit of your seat. I and think we I did think... that. We did that. <laughs> Greg took me to a game uh, towards the end of the second last season, I believe, Greg. And I remember when the two of us walked in, everybody around us had this look on their face of, oh my God. Oh, you're like the guys on the plane. Please don't be row B. Please don't be row F. Or <laughs> yeah. sorry, or 6F. Please yeah. keep walking. Keep walking. Yeah, and we just squeezed ourselves into these two seats like a couple of sardines, and yep. then the game went to overtime, and <laughs> most of the people were probably thrilled about that, and I was thinking, no, no, my <laughs> knees are so sore. I want to go. 
Yes, it's, I think we're at an in, interesting juncture, right? The beginning of season nine for the Jets and uh, just this consecutive sellout streak now ending. Uh, the conversation around how hard or easy is it to get tickets. Super easy if you want to get them. We'd be interested in your feedback. 204-780-6868. Maybe you weren't going to games at all uh, anyway, but we'd like to hear from you if you've changed your attendance pattern over the last couple of seasons, whether it be for football, for hockey, or anything else. Some people suggesting, hey, you know what? I'm paying more in taxes Mm -hmm. now, and uh, I can't afford these uh, luxuries. And I think we need to admit that they, they are a luxury. There's no question about it. Switching gears now, Greg, to someone who you walked out and you said, what's it been, 30 years? <laughs> 30 years, we figure it's been. Uh, our next guest has had his journey to connect with his past, documented in film. And that's got to be a treasure, and I can't wait to find out how he values that. Lost Moccasin is the short film. Bradford Billadeau is a 60 Scoop survivor, was taken from his family in Valley River First Nation and put up for adoption. At an early age, Bradford did not learn He was an adoptee until later in his life. The film, Lost Moccasin, takes Bradford back and travels with him to his home community where he meets his Uncle Bobby to find out more about his birth mother and his past. Bradford joins us now. Mr. Billado, great to see you, my man. Uh, Yeah, I think it's been 30 years, and I was commenting off the air, Bradford's got this just this warm smile, and I remember remember the first time I met him, and uh, I I think I would have recognized you walking down the street with that smile. So so thanks for this. You you seem too young to be a part of the 60s scoop. Uh, Is that maybe a little bit of a misconception? Uh, You're 47. I've just turned 50. Is there, was there some... Carry over into the 1970s here? Uh, yeah, the 60s scoop was, uh, well, first of all, good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me here. This is such an honor. Like I said, my wife just adores all three of you. She listens to you religiously, so. We should say hi then. Hi, sh- K- hi, Cassandra. <laughs> Hello there, Cassandra. <laughs> so, good morning. Uh, yeah, the 60s scoop is, uh, it's the 60s, 70s, and 80s scoop, actually. The coin phrase is 60s scoop. So, it includes people that were born in the 80s as well. Uh, and through the mid nineties, there were still kids being taken. So it doesn't just, it's not just sixties and there's kids taken in the fifties as well, but, uh, the coin is 60 scoop. So how old were you when, when this happened? Uh, I was two years old when I got taken away from my, uh, birth mother. So, and you didn't find out until later what was going on in your new home or your adopted home that you lived a life where you weren't aware that you had come from somewhere else. Well, um, growing up, they had told me that, uh, I was adopted and it wasn't until my teens where I was like, you know, going through that, that you know, an, anti, yeah. you know, juvenile teen life and and just wondering what it would have been like to grow up with my birth parents and, and questions and stuff like that. And, and then I just kept going on through life. I went to college and somehow they found me because I had to get my uh, treaty number uh, through the government with my mom and she found out I was alive. And then they came looking for me and then... Um, I wasn't ready to meet them yet because I was in college. I wasn't at that point in my life. So I kind of held back on them. And then I went back in my uh, 30s to actually go find them. So I think you have to be strong and know what you want if you're going to go into that part of your life, right? You can't just run in there and expect the white picket fence and all that other stuff, eh? So What was the family like that uh, you grew up with? Uh, we had uh, we had our ups and downs, Uh you know, we had we had clashes and stuff like that. I'm not going to say it was uh, it was all 
sugar sweet or anything like that. Um, I think I had a lot of questions that I needed to be answered and nobody was answering them for me. So that made me lash out and, and stuff like that. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a little complicated right now with my Bilodeau family. But uh, I've moved on and uh, I'm getting strong for myself and for my three kids, my three boys. So, How do you go from having all those questions, begging for answers, maybe not being ready for some of those answers, to being super ready to the point where you invite a documentary crew into your life to, to follow you through this journey? It sounds extraordinary to me. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a ride. Like... Um, uh, it, it all started when I did a podcast and the guy that did the podcast uh, in his own basement was, it was kind of funny. We just had a mic and a microphone and I was like, wow, this doesn't look like anything I expected. <laughs> but uh, we did a podcast and he submitted it. Somebody had heard about it and he submitted it into this, um, this program where they gave him a film crew, a producer, a cameraman, a sound guy. And there was only four of them chosen across Canada. Uh, two were in BC, one was in Ontario and we were picked here out of Manitoba so that's when uh, my director, Roger Boyer, said, you know what, we're going to do a film, a documentary on you going back to reserve. So I said, okay. Like it was basically me telling my story again, but this time we're actually going to the reserve and getting footage in that. So um, it was, you know, a lot of it hit my heart and stuff because there was stuff I was finding out as the documentary was being filmed. So if you watch the documentary, it's uh, there's a few parts in there that I'm crying and stuff like well, that. Well, I was going to say, it's one thing to share your story. It's something very different to have a camera following you along when you're in the midst of this discovery and, and, and hurt sometimes, too. What was the hardest part about that walk back? Um, the hardest part was uh, finding out what my, mo- my mother did when she was younger and how she tried to make a life for us kids before we were taken and how she thought she could make it on her own. And then CFS came out of nowhere and they just took us before she could even get a chance to to do her thing. Because had you convinced yourself otherwise that maybe something, you know, maybe it was a good thing or like had you told yourself a different story over the years? Uh, well, I kind of think of like uh, what if, you know, uh, what if I had stayed with them? What if I went down this path? Uh, oh, I never would have met Greg, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I would have never played hockey here or did stuff like that. Right. So you kind of learn from what happened to you. And try not to think of what if and, you know, just be, accept what you have, you know. That's Greg, what I think. Greg mentioned your smile. You've come in here with a positive attitude. Uh, does anybody ever, when you talk about this, is anybody ever sort of taken aback by the positivity and that you're not angrier? Yeah, I've uh, ran into some other scoopers that I've talked to and they're not in the same place I am right now. And they've asked me, like, you know, how can you be like that? Like, you know, look what they did to us. And I understand where they're coming from. And I was like that, too, in the early 90s. But I've kind of grown over that and accepted that, you know, we can't really change too much. We can just bring awareness to other people and let them know what happened. So, I mean, I can live with a chip on my shoulder. But like I said, I have three little boys and it's not going to teach them anything if I keep going around pointing fingers and, you know, and we hate them. We got to hate them and stuff like that. It doesn't teach them anything. So. I got to look out for them as well as hard, myself. Hard not to hate, though. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it's, um, like I said, you can go on life like that, but it's just, it's not worth it, I don't think. So what's at the core of your story? You've been all over North America yeah. to share your story, uh, this film. Uh, you're, you're always uh, free and and uh, giving of your time to, to share your story at different events. You're going to be doing so uh, next week at an event. What's your message, Bradford, and what is it that you're trying to, to spread, and, and what, what's your gift 
Well, the biggest thing that hits me the hardest is when I'm in a room full of two or three people and I said, have any of you ever heard of the 60s scoop? And one of them will say, no, what is that? That's what really bugs me. Like, really, to this day and age, you mm-hmm. don't know what that is? And they're like, no, uh, would you tell me? As long as I go into a room and everybody knows what the 60s scoop is, then I know I'm doing what I'm doing is good because I'm informing people. It's one of the first questions I ask at my talks is, who here has heard of the 60s scoop? And a room full of 10, 20 people, like three or four, will put their hand up. And it just boggles my mind that they didn't know what it was. So as long as I'm bringing awareness and telling people my story and letting them know, and they go home and tell somebody else, one of their friends, you know, it keeps going on. And I just heard this guy talk about the 60s scoop and wow, like, you know, then I think I've done a good job for that. And I'll always continue to share my story. It's a good example of um, how far we haven't come in some ways because we've had the Truth and Reconciliation yep. Commission and all these recommendations that we come out and make sure that everybody understands our history and, and the dark parts of our history. And then to to hear someone like yourself, all you've been through, have to tell it over and over again because people don't know, that's got to be challenging too. Well, telling it over and over again is actually helping me to heal, right? Every time I tell my story and I'm done, I feel like there's a lot of weight lifted off my shoulders. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like thank God I just told that, eh? So it's, it's also helping me heal, too, when I stand in front of a room full of people in that and share what I've been through in that. So, What, it, what about your kids? What, what's the message for your kids? Is it, you, you have three little ones mm-hmm. that you're, you've brought into the world. What's your message? I mean, I follow you on Instagram, and mm-hmm. it's all positivity in your life as far as I can tell. What is the message and their identity? How do you help them sort that out? Well, <laughs> growing up in a, in a not-so-well family life, this fatherhood seat that I've taken, it's it's all new to me now. Like, I can't, like, think back and go, oh, this is what happened to me. Because what happened to me was pretty bad. I have to start, I have to know for myself of what to do with the kids. Like, you know, I go, okay, I'll do this. This seems like it's supposed to be a good thing. Eh? Like, I'm <laughs> going from scratch, basically. And I hope I'm doing the right job. I think I'm doing the right job. But uh, the kids, I always tell them, you know, be proud of yourself. Be proud of your heritage. This is why we smudge. This is why we go to sweat lodges and stuff. And as they get older, they're asking more and more questions. And, and and part of my therapy is I go see a therapist a couple of times a year. And uh, she tells me, like, you know, when are you going to tell your kids what happened? And I said, oh, I'll wait till they're teenagers when they ask. My oldest being seven years old asked me the other day, like, you know, where's your dad? Where's your mom, you know, and stuff. And I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so yeah, that's the next step for you to exactly. figure out how to, how to share that. Because that'll be an important part. The more they know, yeah. the better off they'll be, too, in the long run. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest things I know I've done is I've I've broken that circle, right? Mm-hmm. The circle of ab- uh, physical abuse and what I went through with my adoptive parents. Uh, it's done now, and I'm starting from someplace fresh that doesn't include what happened to me at all. So I think that's a big point right there. You sound like a so- pretty good dad. Can I text you later for some <laughs> advice? <laughs> I don't know. I, it seems like that, but, you know, the kids drive me nuts too, so it's... <laughs> Can I text Cassandra then for some advice? Cassandra's a rock. She is the rock in our family. So Tell us real quick uh, before we let you go here, what are you doing at ASEC Manitoba next week? Uh, I'm going to be sharing my story. I was part of uh, the adult um, education, and that's why Barbara Reimer got me as a speaker, because I went to adult ed to finish off some of my credits and that and get them upgraded. And she wanted a positive experience from it, so she asked me to share my story. So that's what I'll be doing next Thursday, sharing my story. And also, uh, hopefully showing my documentary too. And where can we see this documentary? Uh, I think ABTN is playing it on right now, but it's run like at different times in that. So uh, I think it's got to wait for another year before it's actually shown on the internet and that, because we still have a few film festivals we want to enter it into. 
So we're hoping to go to California this uh, January, February to show it in a film festival there. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.